Let me uh, again add the, uh, my welcome to those of you who have already received. Uh, St. Andrew's Sunday is one of my favorites. Uh, most of you know that I studied in Scotland for a couple of years, and so the, the gentle tones of the bagpipe are like honey to me. I love it, and uh, I'm glad you could be here for it. I'm, and I love looking out and seeing this <clears throat> cacophony of plaid and tartan uh, before me, especially the high school group that's rocking their plaid chair. It's awesome, you guys. Thank you for that. It's so beautiful and so ugly, and it's so wonderful. So thank you. <laughs> Thanks for getting in the, in the spirit of things. For the past eight weeks, we have been asking this question, what would it mean for the people of Chapel Hill to really be for their city, wherever God plants them, to really be for them. We are often known as the, the people who are against stuff. But what would it mean if Chapel Hill, the, the believers at Chapel Hill, were known for what they are for? They're for, they're championing their cities, they're championing their neighbors. And so that's what we've been talking about, and we've been ta- uh, taught in that, mentored in that, by a guy named Nehemiah. Nehemiah was of a, a Jewish family that had been taken uh, into Babylon a uh, hundred years before that, and, but he felt a call of God to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the, the destroyed walls, the broken walls that surrounded the city of Jerusalem. And so he obeyed that. He went back there, and, uh, and in the process, he was going to be rebuilding the broken people of Jerusalem too. Last week we saw Nehemiah as a man of integrity, a leader of integrity, whose walk matched his talk, who, who lived out what he claimed that he believed. In chapter 6, uh, we see that the work on the, on the wall continues to progress, but we also in, in chapter 6 see that Nehemiah's enemies ratchet it up. They pour on the coal. We've seen these guys earlier, haven't we? I call them the guardians of the rubble. Guys like Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshen. They are opposed to Nehemiah doing this work of restoration. There are always people who, for whom the rubble is the norm. They don't want to make things better. They're not willing to do the hard work to restore and to rebuild. They'd rather live in their derelict lives. And Sanballat and Tobiah and the rest of them were just like that. They didn't want Jerusalem to be restored, and they have been fighting him all along the way. And they continue with that in chapter 6. I'm not going to read chapter 6. It's the same song with the second verse. It's just more ways of them intimidating, discouraging, trying to beat down, at one point even trying to assassinate Nehemiah. That's how dirty and stinky and rotten these guys are. But Nehemiah is not going to be stopped. And so, although we're not going to read all of chapter 16, there is one little verse, though, that you've got to look at. It kind of sneaks up on us. Verse 15, right in the middle. Before that, they're trying to sneak, figure out how to kill Nehemiah. After that, they're still trying to figure out how to cause trouble for him. But right in the middle of that chapter, verse 15, we read this incredible piece of news. He says, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all of our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. In other words, they had thought they were hot stuff. They didn't feel like such hot stuff anymore because they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. That's a wonderful little snippet right there in the middle of chapter 6, isn't it? The wall was done in 52 days. 
Less than two months, this incredible work of, of renovation, restoration was accomplished. When you see some of those walls that still stand around the outside of Jerusalem today, it's all the more astounding. Despite all of the opposition, the threats, the fatigue, the mocking, the discouragement, despite the naysayers and the doomsayers, despite the worst that the, that the guardians of the rubble could throw at them, the wall was rebuilt, and Jerusalem was a city once more. And even their enemies, I love that line, even their enemies recognized that God, their God, was something special. And they who thought they were pretty hot stuff, they fell in their own esteem. They realized that these people had an amazing God. What a joyous moment that must have been when they put that last rock in the last little niche of the wall and they were able to celebrate. I think we got a sense of that. Only moments ago when we, we lit fire to that mortgage. That represents really 27 years of labor, of sacrifice, of dreams. Way back to the time when we built the gymnasium before any of us was here. We dreamed of building buildings that would serve our community. And we took on the debt to accomplish it. But all along we've dreamed of the day when we would burn that last mortgage and rid us of the debt so that we would be freed up to move ahead as we have never done before. I think we have a taste of what must, they must have been feeling like in that moment when the final wall was completed. The wall was done. The job was done. And there, there might be a sense in which you could say, mission accomplished, right? Well, not quite yet as we discover when we move on to Nehemiah 7. If you want to pull your pew Bibles out or your Bible apps, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 7. You'll find it about page 402 or something like that in the pew Bible. And let's listen as this story continues, all right? Now, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites, that's the priests, had all been appointed, and I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Let's just pause there. In other words, this place is still dangerous. And at nighttime, it's especially dangerous. So you close these gates that we've just built, and you lock them up. You bar them and keep us safe. You don't open them until the sun's bright overhead. And he goes on, appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own houses. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I read it. The walls were built, the gates had been completed, and the honor of the city was being restored. But I, noted, I want you to notice something else. Nehemiah is still being very vigilant. He appoints guards. He makes sure that the doors are locked. He appoints great governors over, the, over, over this city that, they can, that he can trust. He knows that even now the enemies might come in and try to sabotage the work that they have done. So Nehemiah is still working at it. He's like a construction guy that's got a, a punch list to finish the job, make sure everything is done perfectly. But then he does two things. He does two things that every great leader does. Even at this point of triumph, Nehemiah does two things. He looks ahead, 
and he looks back. Every good leader is able to look ahead and look back, and that's exactly what Nehemiah does. First of all, we catch him peeking ahead. He's looking ahead. Even in this moment of great triumph when he's finishing this project for which they had come, he's already looking ahead because he realizes there's still more work to be done. Did you notice that in verse 4? We are told that the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. No houses had been rebuilt. Think about that. So now they got this great wall surrounding the city. Their boundaries have been reestablished. The temple, which had been sitting on top of that hill, unguarded, was now protected. It was safe. And finally, Jerusalem was a proper city once again. But Nehemiah realizes we're not done. Why? Because the people are gone. The population of Jerusalem has dwindled. Why? Because their houses are all destroyed. In that great battle that destroyed the city, that destroyed the walls, that destroyed the temple, the, the people's houses were also destroyed. And so even though they have this great wall and they got their temple rebuilt, they've got very few people living in the city because their houses are nothing. They're shacks and sheds. And you already begin to hear Nehemiah beginning to click away at the next plan. He realizes the city's life is not in its architecture, it's in its people. What are we going to do to get this city filled with people again? There was more to be done, even as they were celebrating this completion. Beloved, for the people of God, the church of God, there's always more to be done. There's always more children to be cared for. Always more marriages to be restored. Always more widows to be visited. Always more prisoners to be cared for. Always more souls to be saved. We can never as a people rest on our laurels. We can never sit back and say, "Eh, that's done. Finally, we're all finished. The church that does that, the church that stops dreaming, the church that stops straining ahead, the church that stops leaning into their future, that's the church that starts what? Dying. The landscape of churches across the country are scattered with churches that have stopped dreaming, stopped leaning, stopped working towards a future, and they are dead, 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 dead. That's what happens. The truth of it is, you grow, you change, or you die. And I think that's one of the reasons that beyond these walls captured the hearts of this congregation. We knew that it was the next thing, the next thing forward. It's not just about paying off the debt. Although I'll, give you, I'll tell you the truth. For me, it was about paying off the debt. It really was. Listen, I had been the pastor when we built all this stuff and he took all this debt on. I felt a huge responsibility to, to get us to the point of being debt-free. And I kept going to my elders to the session and saying, we need a debt campaign. How about something like finish the race? And the elders, I think, wisely pushed back and they said, you and about 20 others in the church are the only ones that care about just paying off the debt for the sake of paying off the debt. That's not going to inspire anyone. You need to cast a vision of what is going to happen when we free up the resources by paying off that debt so that we can do other great things that we can turn our attention beyond our walls into this community. 
And I think they were right about this. It's not just about paying off debt. It's about freeing up the resources so we can pour a half a million dollars a year into the world around us. And that's where Beyond These Walls was born. The dream of planting a new church beyond these walls. The dream of building a, a new fish food bank building, helping them be a part of that. That was born out of that. And all of the rest of the stuff that is starting to bubble up. In fact, you're going to get a letter this week that tells you about yet another thing that will be a part of Beyond These Walls. We want to serve and love the communities of which we are part in ways we have never done before. Even as Nehemiah was putting the finishing touches on the walls, his assignment, he's already beginning to think about what is next. What do we need to do next for the sake of the city? He said, we got to rebuild these broken houses because we got to bring people back because we got to get the life of the people into this community. And so he's looking ahead, and you can almost hear this great leader beginning to figure out how do we pull this off. And suddenly, God presses pause. Suddenly, God says, hold on there, buckaroo. I want you to slow down for a second. And, and we find that in verse 5. It says, then my God put it on my heart. Then all of a sudden, God put something on his heart. Nehemiah's thinking walls and gates and, and, and musicians and guards and new houses. And the Lord says, just you wait a second. Before we leap into this future that you imagine, I, want to, I got something I want you to do. I want, and he puts this on his heart. What is it he puts on his heart? We discover in verse 5. Then my God put it on my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I read it. Before Nehemiah is able to move ahead into this new future, this next project that he thinks he's got to do, God says, before you move ahead, I want you to look back. I want you to remember the first group of pioneers that came through here and give thanks for them. You say, what are you talking about? Nehemiah and his crew that came from Babylon, they're not the first pioneers that returned. Did you know that? A hundred years earlier, there was a group that came back from Babylon. Why did they come back? They came back because the temple of God had been destroyed and they were going to rebuild it. They came back under a leader named Zerubbabel. And he brought this group of intrepid and courageous pioneers back. And they rebuilt the temple of God in the city of God. And even in this moment of triumph, Nehemiah realizes that they would not be doing any of this if it weren't for these pioneers before them. And so he pauses. He realizes they stand on the shoulders of these saints who went before them. And so he stops for a moment. He says, I'm going to read out the names of everyone who made what we are doing here possible. I'm not going to do that today because this is what that list of names looked like if you kept going. I could read it if anybody wants me to. All right. He said, go ahead. They came with, no. I'm not going to read it, but he, he calls all of the people together in front of him, and he reads out that list of names. He's saying, listen, we wouldn't have built this wall if these people hadn't have come before us, if these people hadn't have built this building, built this temple. This is why we are here, and we cannot move ahead without looking back and saying, thank you for the faithfulness of these people. And that's exactly what St. Andrew's Weekend is all about. We're always leaning forward as a church. I love that. We're always moving forward. We're always trying new things. We're always kind of stirring things up and ruffling a few feathers. It's kind of what we do. But this is our moment when instead of just looking ahead, we stop and we look back. 
And we pause and we remember our pioneers, our church fathers and mothers whose vision and sacrifice laid the groundwork for this church that we have today, way over there in that little chapel on the other end of this, of this building. And th these people who built this church and grew this church didn't only focus on that. They built and grew the city of which we are a part. You pay attention to the, the, the scrolling of, this, of the names in a little while. You're going to recognize Gig Harbor street names. Because the same church fathers and mothers who were building and throwing their faith into growing this church were building and pouring and investing into their own city to the point that the people said, we got to remember them, but we're going to put their name on a street. And that's what we are trying to do today. We're trying to carry on that legacy of service to our city. For the city is all about that. It's putting hands and feet to our faith. It's not hunkering down behind our walls in a little holy huddle once a week. So many churches are like that. They come inside their beautiful buildings. They sing their beautiful music. They pat each other on the back because they are so proud of each other spiritually. And we ignore the outside. And we said, we're not going to be that kind of a church. We're going to come here to be resupplied, re-encouraged, retrained, and then we're going to go out for the city and for the region and for the world. That's what we are going to be about. One of our elders was talking at our last meeting of our elders called The Session, and he was saying, you know, I've run into some people who don't quite get this whole for the city thing. What are we supposed to do with that? He said, here's what I'm telling them, because this is what I've come to understand. This is one of your elders talking. I'm quoting him. He said, everybody loved the idea of beyond these walls. Everybody loved that, of eliminating our debt so that we could move out into our community. But he says, I came to realize that for the city takes it from being about the church as a group of people to being about me as a person. The question is not what will the church do beyond these walls, but what will I do beyond these walls? And he went on to say, I'll confess it makes me uncomfortable. I'm not, I'm, it's not easy for me to do it, but it is a good discomfort. For the city, he said, is making beyond these walls personal. And that's exactly right. In a moment, you're going to see the roll call of faith. The list of every Chapel Hill member who has ever passed away. It's a long list. It's getting longer every year. And within that list, you're going to see the names of of those who left a forever imprint upon this church. If you knew them, and some of you did, you'll never forget them. And if you didn't know them, I'm so sorry that you didn't. You missed out. Names of people like Uddenberg and Logic and Johnson and Smith and Pandiani and Conan and Nichols. Most of you have no idea what you owe to these people and the scores of others that are on that list. I want to introduce you to one of those couples, the Thorntons, Bill and Margaret Thornton. Anyone ever ushered by Bill Thornton? Anyone ever? One person. Ah, sorry, four persons. Well, am I right? There was no usher like Bill Thornton. Bill Thornton showed up every time this church was open for a service. Bill Thornton was here. You didn't even have to ask. That was what he did. He'd show up. He had his bulletins. He had the, he had the uh, offering plate. He was ready to go. And when he handed out the, the bulletins, he said, this is going to be a beautiful service. He always called everything beautiful. It's going to be such a beautiful service. 
He shaped this church. In fact, we so honored Bill Thornton that we turned the ushers closet, we named it Bill's Closet. So next time you go around that corner right over there and you'll find Bill's Closet. That's to honor Bill Thornton. And then his wife Margaret. Now that was a woman was a force to be reckoned with, am I right? Margaret Thornton was something else. There was a day when we didn't have this beautiful sanctuary with the pews already in place. We were worshiping our gymnasium and so we showed up every Sunday morning there was a, a crew of chair guys who had, and some gals actually who had set up 600 chairs every Sunday morning along with everything else that we needed. And after the chair crew had come through, I would walk into the gym and I would find Margaret Thornton moving her way down the chair aisles, one aisle at a time, to make sure that every single chair was just right. And then she'd do it again, all the way. 600 chairs back and forth, Margaret moved. And then she would take the flowers that she had cut out of her own garden and she would arrange them up in front and make it so beautiful. Six days a week, that was a gymnasium. But for Margaret, that day, that was the sanctuary of Almighty God. And she was going to do all that was required to make that a beautiful and perfect place of worship for God and for His people. Margaret Thornton, Bill Thornton, names that will be forever emblazoned in my heart. And that's what you're going to be reminded of when you see this list. Even if you didn't know them, that's what you're looking at. Now, Let's be honest, not everyone that you're going to see on that list was quite as faithful as Bill and Margaret and the others. The fact is, in any group of people, there are some who are the leaders, there are some who are the servants, there are some who pour in their hearts out, and there are others who are kind of spectators. They're, they're just kind of going along for the ride. They're more a consumer than they are a contributor to it. But on this day, I'd love to say to you that it doesn't have to stay that way. I mean, there, there are going to be people in this space who would have to de de describe themselves in that way. You don't have to stay there. You could decide even in this moment when you're inspired by the Spirit and you see the list of names of people who've done so much for you, you could say, you know what? I need to do my part. I need to make my mark on this church and on this city, and it's not too late for you to do that. Because in this For the City, we have been asking, we've been urging every person to discover what that elder discovered. And what it was is this, that God is calling me God is calling me to step beyond my church walls and to bless my city and my neighborhood. God is calling me to speak up for Jesus when I get a chance instead of being afraid and not opening my mouth. God is calling me to be more generous, me to be more loving, me to be more caring and kind. God is calling me to bless my neighbors. That's what For the City is about. God is calling you to be a part of this. Can you hear that call? And do you want to be a part of that? To put it differently, imagine a hundred years from now, another Nehemiah finds a list. A list of the, of the saints of Chapel Hill that were invested in their city, invested in Tacoma and Gig Harbor and Port Orchard. He, the, the list of those who were all in for the mission of Jesus. Would your name be on that list? Would your name be on that list? Well, in case you think that the answer might be no, today could be your starting point. A chance for you to say, Lord, I've been holding back, but I want to join with the rest of my brothers and sisters. I want to be counted among the faithful. I want my name to be up on that list, whatever that would be someday. To be said that I did my part for the mission of Jesus to love and serve and transform and rebuild this community.